Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. It's been it's been a minute since we've been reviewing movies. Mitchell Lee, Brandon Two here with you on uh press play action here on Jersey Nerds Productions. I'm still a little bit sick. Brandon and I also had a little bit of a uh we went to a friend's bachelor party about a week and a half ago, and I think that's where I got sick. So um I'm just getting over that, but there's plenty of stuff coming up. We're just a little bit behind schedule, but we will get caught up. Brandon, how you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm actually a little bit uh sick stuffy as well. Um so Damn maybe it. there's a, a connection there. Um but yeah, I'm all good. Uh yeah, not too much to complain about. Uh excited for these two movies that we're about to talk about because these are some heavy hitters in terms of all time. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and dive right into it. The first one of our IMDb podcasts, we did the uh, the Green Mile and the Shawshank Redemption. And we are going to get to 1999, not, not too far from now, where we'll kind of go through the movies that were nominated for Best Picture and see whether we think the right one won. But 1994 is the year, right? not the year right now, it was 30 years ago, but it's the year we're going to spend today with. We talked about Shawshank. It's the number one movie on the IMDb Top 250, but it did not win Best Picture. Forrest Gump won Best Picture. And Pulp Fiction, also a very highly regarded movie, nominated for the top honor at the Oscars that year. So we will review both of those movies, and at the end, we'll give you our final verdict as to whether they got it right, and if not, who should have won instead. So, Brandon... Let's start this thing off. Let's start off with Pulp Fiction, shall we? Yes. Yes. Well, we'll end we it shall. off with the uh, with the Best Picture winner in Forrest Gump. So, have you seen Pulp Fiction before, or is this your first time seeing it? So this is probably my first time watching it all the way through. I've seen like bits and pieces of it, but never sat down and watched it all the way through. So I got some references, you know. The classic scenes where, you know, Royale with cheese, um, that type of stuff. I've definitely gotten those references before. Bring Out the Gimp is another one that I've heard before. But um, but never seen it all the way through and never seen those scenes, like, all the way through. And, yeah, so I was excited for this one because I'm actually a huge Tarantino fan. For the movies that I have seen, I really like Tarantino movies. I saw this one about... It's crazy to say, but about 10 years ago now, I I saw this movie for the first time and I loved it. However, I've always kind of considered Django Unchained to be my favorite Tarantino movie. Yeah. And we'll kind of get into why here in a bit, but I think that, and and we're also going to review Django Unchained in the next month or so is we're going to really dive into Quentin Tarantino's filmography in the next few weeks i'm excited to do that there's a lot of stuff that i haven't seen in a while and some stuff that i've never seen period uh but i think that this watch of pulp fiction really challenged that because this is going to be tough to beat for anybody uh obviously as you mentioned and we've we've said that this was written directed by uh, quentin tarantino and stars a whole bunch of people uh, John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, uh, Ving Rhames, Bruce Willis, probably the most notable people. 
It was released in October of 1994, and it was the number 10 grossing movie in America in 1994. Made $107,000,000, and it won the top prize, the the Palme d'Or, at the uh, Cannes Film Festival in 1994. And this movie really... We'll get into Reservoir Dogs in a, in a week or two, but this was the one that really put Quentin Tarantino on the map in the mainstream and yeah. became a classic basically overnight. Is this Tarantino, it might not be his peak, but this is like his turning point, right? This is when I think most people consider it to be Tarantino's him. peak. Yeah, that I mean, that's fair. That might be his, you know... Like Bill Simmons likes to call it, like the apex mountain. This might be his like apex mountain. This might be his peak, um, but it's close. I, it is like the turning point where people started taking a taking notice of him as a director and a writer, and being like, okay, this guy can actually direct. He can write. Like he's not just a bad actor, which I guess we could always get into. But uh, but yeah, um, I I love this film too. Um, I don't know if it's quite the best that he's ever done, but man, it is. It is up there. It is very close. Uh, and like you said, just so many like A-list actors or even like B-list that he just got so many people into this into this movie that have small roles, big roles. It's crazy how much how how many people we got into this film to like kind of do this with him. And and it's it's not a a movie for everyone, but it is definitely a movie that that is that takes some risk and, and goes out there on a limb on, on some parts of it. Uh, the big the big thing that anyone talks about when they talk about this movie is just the writing and how yeah. spectacular it is. I mean, and you get a sense of that from the first conversation that John Travolta and Samuel Jackson have in this movie, where they're not just talking about they're not just talking uh, talking shop. They're they're talking about John Travolta went overseas and they're talking about the little differences between what they have going on in Europe and what they have here, you know, the Royale with cheese and putting uh what is it? Mayonnaise on fries or something like that, which is just yeah, yeah. horrible. Um, but you really get a sense early on that even when it's not plot conducive, so to speak, you're going to be interested in what these characters have to say. And this is, I mean, it was a highly influential movie that everyone tried to rip off in one way or another. And there were a lot of people yeah, that, definitely. that ripped it off unsuccessfully. And then there were some people that, you know, some of Guy Ritchie's earlier movies might be seen as uh, more, quote unquote, successful uh, Tarantino ripoffs. Even something like The Gentleman uh, has gotten some some Tarantino comparisons. Yeah, and, there's a lot of you know, similarities. Both vibes. really enjoy that movie. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities to it, some vibes going on. Um, I think the writing and like what he decided to do with the storytelling and how he told the story is what I think a lot of other movies have tried to like capture, but this movie does it the best. The telling it out of order. Yeah, telling it out of order. And that's not like a new thing for him because with Reservoir Dogs, I don't know if he wrote that after this or I think he wrote that before this. Um, That one tells it like backwards, almost like in reverse order. So he's he's played around with stuff before, but the way he tells the story is bizarre, and it it works. It it works as a movie, 
And um, that's I think that's his crowning achievement, right? Like, you're correct that the writing is awesome, but the storytelling on top of that is just what makes it work. Um, and it's just awesome. Well, what I love about it is it doesn't feel cheap. It feels yeah. like everything is in service of the story. It doesn't just feel like, look at what I'm doing. I can tell this out of order. I can do all this stuff. And there's not a real rhyme or reason for doing it. It's all very much in service of the story. And I like the moments where you can kind of tell that, okay, there's a overall vision for this whole thing. And it was all in service of that, particularly uh, the stuff with the watch was yeah. was uh if, if we didn't get that kind of flashback it wouldn't have had the value that it did uh we kind of start and end in the same spot and i think that that was a really clever way to go about the story again we'll get into spoilers more towards the end but it's it's very that there's characters that the you know i'm not, not going to give any particulars but there's characters that die and then you see them later and it's like, wait, hold on. And then it kind of takes you a second to realize what the, what it's the plot out of order. is. Yeah. yeah it's out of kind order. of, yeah. yeah. And I, I think the first time that I watched it, I didn't appreciate that the same way that I did this time. And I also thought that the whole Bruce Willis storyline, the first time that I watched it was kind of subpar. I didn't really care. And that definitely improved a lot. This time around, I, I would I really make the liked... argument that what? the Butch Coolidge, the boxing, the boxer Bruce Willis's character, I would argue that that might be the strongest point of the movie. I would definitely life. disagree with that, but I still really liked it. I'll get to what I love the most here in a minute. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, tell tell me some more about that. Well, I I just think um the flashback to the watch um with his dad. And then the significance of the watch. I can't, I can't take Christopher Walken seriously. I don't yeah, know how I'm going to do with him and do. He hit it in his ass. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the walking stuff, like, it's kind of funny, like, seeing him call on screen and, and then, like, know, knowing what he does in, like, future roles. It's just really hard to separate. But, um, but I think that scene is impactful, like you said. And then you get the flash. Like, it's not like a flashback. It's almost like he's telling it out of order, like, from coolidge's point of view and it involves another character inside of it and i think at that point like once that scene happens where a character dies and then he's basically on the run or he's basically like trying to get away and then he gets i mean well i'm not going to spoil anything the pawn shop that yep the pawn shop scene um and I, I think that might be the most entertaining part of the movie is kind of what I was getting at. Um, I, that's really that's really when the movie picks up is what I was going to say. You definitely do feel a lot of the tension because uh, Bruce Willis is a, is a boxer that's supposed to throw a fight for Marcellus Wallace, who's played by Ving Rhames. And not only does he not only does he win the fight, but he kills the other boxer. <laughs> yeah, so he, he wins and him. wins by a, a hefty margin. Um, so he's on the run because, yeah, I think he just put in a bunch of bets that he was going to win this fight. He's going to cash out and uh, leave town with his uh, with his girlfriend, and he's just got to avoid running into Marcellus Wallace. And the ups and downs of Bruce Willis from the second that he leaves the hotel 
it's 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 insane. I don't know how Tarantino came up with half of the ideas that he did. And right. I'll be honest, given where it goes, I don't want to know how he came up yeah. with those ideas because that's some fucked up shit. I'm just going to say, um, <laughs> do not watch this, this movie with members of your family, you know, just, just, just don't do it. Um, but I definitely disagree about the, f- I really liked Bruce Willis and, you know, Bruce Willis, did a great job in this movie. Ving Rhames did really good in this movie. But as far as I am concerned, personally, this movie belongs to Samuel L. Motherfucking Jackson. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I can I can get behind that. Like even if I think that the the high point or like uh, the most entertaining part was like Butch Coolidge and Bruce Willis, uh Jules Winfield, Samuel Jackson is the best character in this movie and i don't think it's close like how good of a character jules winfield is um it's it's pretty shocking how good he is at in this role now samuel jackson did not win best supporting actor for this which is absurd who won over i still need to see ed wood it's martin landau and ed wood playing bella lugosi and i've heard he is very good in that i have not seen it I can't really judge it. Yeah, exactly. Um, John Travolta was also nominated for Best Actor as uh, Vincent Vega. He lost to Tom Hanks. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I do think that Tom Hanks, between him and John Travolta, I I think that... Yeah, I think they got that right. I think they got that right. Uma Um, Thurman was nominated for Supporting Actress, too, but she did not win. This also goes into... And we can maybe talk about this more with spoilers, but since they're considering Vega the the main actor, kind of where you think this story goes. Because I think I have a theory on what what the storytelling device is, and I think the device is, is Vega. Like, I think it's being told through Vega's point of view. Yeah, you were um, texting weird. me about that after you saw it. I'll let you know. I was a little confused. So we'll have to talk about um, that when we'll we get talk to about spoilers. It. But Samuel Jackson, I think this movie belongs to him. Him and John Travolta have outstanding chemistry in yeah, every scene that they're in together good. they have great chemistry but samuel L. jackson there's a scene oh it's it's one it's maybe the most famous scene in the movie where uh he's just talking to these 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 three guys in this living room that they're uh they're confronting about kind of trying to pull one over on marcellus wallace and every single line that comes out of Samuel L. Jackson's mouth is iconic. And I got to give major props to Quentin Tarantino, but also I cannot imagine any other actor delivering those lines as well as Samuel L. Jackson did. And I thought, wow, this is a, an amazing performance. But then we get to the end of the movie. And again, no spoilers. We'll get to it later. But, Samuel Jackson and the last scene of this movie, I think you would have, I, I haven't seen Ed Wood. I don't know, but I just find it hard to believe that this man didn't take home a golden statue. Yeah. It's, it's tough to envision anyone else in 94 being better than him in a supporting role. And you could argue that he's not a supporting actor, a lot like Shawshank. You could argue that he's not really the, the supporting actor. He is the actor. I'll um, go as far as guy. to say this. Between Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, and Forrest Gump, 
if you had to say, hey, Mitchell, what do you think was the best acting performance in those three movies? I'll take Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Cause that's the one that I'll take. I'll, I'm going to take Morgan Freeman still because I think Morgan Freeman and his voiceovers are what carries that movie with Shawshank. But I can't, like, it's very close. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is a stud in this movie. Two for me is either Tom Hanks or Morgan Freeman. Oh, that's interesting. It's so you, it's it's really close between yeah, those two. Yeah. Well, no, I I let's be honest. Forrest Gump doesn't work if Tom Hanks isn't. That's Tom true. Hanks. The movie but is basically entirely on his shoulders. It's basically Tom Hanks, but I think in terms of characters, um, Samuel Jackson's character is iconic, and like that is is that peak Samuel Jackson? Like that might be peak. Yes. Yeah, he's he's so good. I think so that Samuel L. Jackson does his best work in Tarantino movies because yeah. the the if I was to give like a second or third place, it would be like the Hateful Eight and Django Unchained. Yeah, exactly. Like he's so, so good in these movies that he does with Tarantino. Him, I think him, him and, and Tarantino, Tarantino have a great rapport. Yeah, they just like they connect on like what the character needs to do, what the the vibe, the feeling they're trying to get from the character. Um, I, I just loved it. I mean, honestly, a lot of these characters, like even characters who are barely in it, have iconic lines or, or just like throw away like funny lines that you're like, wow, that was genius writing. Um, yeah, this movie's awesome. I love this movie. Um, I'm assuming we're saving spoilers to after we talk about Forrest Gump, but I also kind of just want to like dive into it right now and just talk about it. But I, I got to ask you to be patient. Also, yeah. Uh, Harvey Keitel as uh, as the wolf in this. Oh my god! Loved him. It Loved is amazing. He's he only has like ten minutes of screen time, Actually, but I thought he was incredible. Scratch that reverse. I'm gonna pull Willy Wonka. The wolf is the best part of this entire movie. That ten minutes is so freaking awesome. That ten minutes is is divine intervention of. Quentin Tarantino's writing where he just goes, I'm going to put it out on the table and this character is about to absolutely do some, like, not even insane stuff. Just just the writing is going to be incredible for the next 10 minutes. So, like, sit back and watch. It's it's so funny. Yeah, it's the only problem I have with Harvey Keitel is he's on screen with Quentin Tarantino a lot. And Tarantino's a fantastic director. He's a fantastic writer, but buddy, you cannot act. I mean, I still think his lines in some of this movie is funny. He gave himself like some funny lines, which I thought was hilarious. But um, yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. Um, I still think the wolf is so, that's such a, like I hadn't seen that scene before because I don't think that scene gets referenced a lot by people because, or, you know, that, that 10 minutes doesn't get referenced a lot. I don't think by a lot of people, like the mainstream doesn't reference it. But I, like I was saying, that might be the most entertaining 10 minutes in the entire movie. Um, it's close with Witch Butch College and the pawn shop scene. What did you think about the stuff between John Travolta and Uma Thurman? Ooh, uh, you know, it, it kind of was a little weird um, in the way it was told, like out of order. Um, it, it kind of felt like a different movie, and I think that's what he was going for, right? He kind of was trying to make it feel like a different, a different part of the movie. And I think it works. And their chemistry works. The dance scene is a little weird, but like 
then you have some inference that like they might not have won the dance competition they might have like done something else but yeah it's just it's just interesting um the scene is interesting in, in, of, in of itself i guess like there's like what three scenes together it, it, it's kind of a different movie is what it is so yeah I think it's supposed to feel kind of awkward given what you hear at the beginning of the movie in a conversation that Travolta and Samuel Jackson have about what might have happened with someone else that got maybe a little too close to uh, Marcellus Wallace's wife. Right. Uh, so I think you're kind of supposed to feel awkward alongside John Travolta. And I think that they did that really well. Um this is an all-time classic as far as I'm concerned. It's earned its status as being one of the uh, the great American movies. Um, let's see, where is it on the IMDb? It's number eight. Number yeah. eight all-time. So it is, it's, it's definitely considered to be a classic. And I'll go ahead and give my grade. I've, I've got no problem doing that. Um, this is an A plus very clearly, and there was never any danger of it not being an A plus. A plus, eighty point three eight percent. So okay. not just an A plus, but a really high one at that. Uh, so not quite as high as Shawshank. Again, Shawshank was a ninety seven point three one. That is on a whole nother level than you know movies get to. So. I do have Shawshank above Pulp Fiction, but could, could you give us like a number of a, of another ninety five film that you've seen recently that would be in that range, maybe ninety five? Yeah, like ninety five and above, just to give us like a an idea of what a ninety five plus A plus. Uh, is. I have The Dark Knight above that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking about like the iconic films of american cinema basically i have the empire strikes back kind of in that range so, nice that's yeah. that's what we love to hear um so i'm a little bit lower on this than you still an a plus i'm gonna go 70.5 okay so that's 10 fair. points lower than you percentage wise but this movie is awesome and honestly if i rewatch it again all the way through it grade might go up that's how good this movie is. I'm not gonna lie to you. I did rewatch it. I watched oh, it and then I watched it again, it again two days yeah. later. I just I you I was really feeling it. You pulled me with the saw shake. You're like, yeah. yeah, let's just watch this again. I was just um, really feeling it that day. Did you uh did you put it down the diary? It's got to be there. It's got to be in in the diary again. Did you I don't think down... I did actually. Oh, yeah. you should put it down. You should put down yeah. five stars. Loved it again. Like just <laughs> in the review, just write. You we watched it again after two days. It's still incredible, or just write something like that. But um, no, this movie's awesome, and a seventy point five on like an A plus is just. I mean, if if we were getting to like the seventies with with that like scale, I mean, we're starting to get to territory where the the movie's one of the best of all time. Um, so yeah, I I absolutely adore this movie, and I'm so glad I got to almost like watch it for the first time this time you did, basically awesome. i mean you saw it for the first time the whole way through yeah exactly so uh i can't wait to rewatch it i'll probably be watching it at some point uh i can't wait 
All right, let's move this thing along to Forrest Gump. This Oof. one took home the Oscar for Best Picture in 1994. It also took home Best Actor for Tom Hanks' as Forrest Gump, and both the movies we're talking about today won Best Screenplay. This was Best Adapted Screenplay, whereas Pulp Fiction won Best Original Screenplay. Also, uh, Gary Sinise nominated for Best Supporting Actor for playing Lieutenant Dan, but he uh, did not win. He lost to uh, Martin Landau and Ed Wood as well. This was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who gave us such movies as the Back to the Future trilogy, mm-hmm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Cast Away, and some really horrifying-looking CG Disney movies like A Christmas Carol and The Polar Express and Mars Needs Moms and just some just really. So there ter- seems to be a theme having Tom Hanks in his his movies. Terrifying-looking movies, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, does like working with Tom Hanks. This stars Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, uh, Michael T. Williamson, and Sally Fields. It was released on July 6th, 1994, and was the highest grossing movie of 1994. This made $329 million, edging out The Lion King for the highest grossing movie of That's impressive. 1994. Most movies, and again, it was a little different back in the 90s because there weren't as many movies coming out and, you know, things had a little bit more time to breathe. Uh, This movie came out on July 8th and then the next weekend. Most movies nowadays drop about 50, 55%. Forrest Gump dropped 1%. In its second weekend, were people like rewatching this? I bet you people were coming to like see it the next weekend. They were like, "Yeah, probably. I saw it again. Let's just go rewatch it." Like, yeah, they were just all this, in on it. This movie was doing steady business throughout the summer and into the fall, so it, it became a phenomenon. Got a little Knives Out treatment where it was just in the theaters for like yeah. four months. It yeah. just stayed there. Uh, Brandon, have you seen this one before? Oh yeah, this is one that I've watched multiple times. There's one I hate. I love this movie. I really do. I I think this movie is really good. I love it. There's some problems I have with it. The those problems are not Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks makes this movie. Um, some of the scenes are just so wild and out there. And I think that's the biggest takeaway, right? Is it, it feels smaltzy, I guess, is a good way of putting it. It feels corny, cheesy. Like, how could Forrest Gump be in all these events in the 1960s and 50s and 70s that are, are so political and so groundbreaking? And, and it doesn't really take away from the movie. And I just don't think this movie works with any other actor but Tom Hanks. And I, that sounds bold to say, but I, I I truly think Tom Hanks is the reason this movie succeeds. Oh, he absolutely is. I, I think that he deserved the Best Actor Oscar in 1994 for this role because, yeah, if, if Tom Hanks, if you don't buy Tom Hanks in this movie, this movie does not work whatsoever. And it's probably the most iconic role of his iconic career. And there's this is when he's on his heater, reason. right? Like. This is when he's like in the middle of his heater. This was the second. Uh, people don't win Oscars in back-to-back years. 
It's just not a thing that happens. And Tom Hanks won in 93 for Philadelphia, and then he won in 94 for Forrest Gump. Now, I will stand on a table and say that he should not have won for Philadelphia in 1993 because Liam Neeson and Schindler's List should have won. That's fair. Fair take. I I definitely think that that was one that he probably shouldn't have gotten. I also think that's two iconic people going up against each other in two very iconic movies. Um, so I I get why Hanks might have won. I, that's a fair take. I, I I I just don't know if you can say that he shouldn't have won in Forrest Gump. I think hands down he should have won. Uh, Forrest Gump, I would have given it to him. Because, uh, yeah, so much of this movie is on his shoulders. And you get to know this kid, Forrest, from a very early age. And his mom wants to give him the same opportunities as everyone else. But he has disabilities. He has things that are holding him back, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, like his mom almost tries to like look the other way on on him, or like give him uh, encouragement. Like these these won't stop you. Like you you're still you're not a special child. You're just a normal child, and uh, it's interesting. Like and go, keep going with that because I think that's like the most interesting part of the movie. Um, yeah, so keep going. Yeah, kind of getting to know him, and I think they do a really good job of making you feel like. He, whenever he succeeds at something that he is overcoming, whatever he's overcoming that he's putting in the work. Uh, there's a lot of this movie that just kind of feels like I, if, if I have a negative about this movie, uh, apart from the bigger negative that we will get to, there's a lot of just like, all right, I get it. Forrest Gump he, wasn't involved with every damn thing. At his, yeah, he's he, he just happens to be there. Like, okay, we get it, but but yeah, but, like people will just go up to Forrest Gump and he'll just say something, and then it'll be like, "Oh, Forrest Gump actually accidentally came up with the plan for the moon landing." It's like, no, yeah. no, he didn't. Like I, they did that. I was so like many so surprised just, they weren't it took like, me out of the movie every time. Yeah, I was so surprised they weren't like Forrest Gump, you know, gave them the idea to make Mario is is a Nintendo character. Yeah. Like just like random stuff like that. Um yeah, it, it takes you out of the movie a little bit, but I mean the fact that that's basically what the movie is, um, and it's not really that big of a negative, I, I think is a is a hat tip to uh to Tom Hanks as a in the way he kind of tells the story, which also I guess we can kind of get into this. This is this isn't a spoiler. This is like what happens. But the movie kind of starts with him sitting on a bus bench, like waiting for a bus, and the entire movie is basically him just sitting there, like narrating to people. Yeah, talking to people, telling a story, narrating his life to like random strangers, and I think that is an interesting plot device. And I also think it doesn't work unless it's Tom Hanks too, if that makes sense. It's an interesting plot device, but I, I'm not sure I like where it ended up. That's fair. And again, yeah. we'll get more into that with spoilers, but I'm not sure I liked where it really went. Uh, by the way, just a fun fact. I didn't know this. Apparently, he would have played football at the same time in Alabama as Joe Namath. Well, I mean, so I'm, someone's got to the football. Someone's I'm surprised the it didn't work in a, like Forrest Gump telling Joe Namath. I guarantee it. You know, I... They, they might as well have. You're um, right. But this, I, I really liked, again, seeing him overcome stuff, uh, mostly with with, uh, with Lieutenant Dan. I thought that him and Lieutenant Dan and their 
their connection their bond was the yeah. best of the movie because it is not linear at all lieutenant dan is very clearly someone working through some some stuff i mean he's part of this family where everyone dies in war and forrest gump saves him but he doesn't have any legs now so he's right. got a you know his destiny quote unquote has been taken right. from him exactly yeah but he also starts to see that forrest gump yeah he might not be the smartest guy in the room but he's got a good head on his shoulders and he's trying to do the right thing and he's got goals and aspirations and he kind of just goes along with what Forrest has going on. And I thought that that was really fun to watch. Yeah. It's well, also being fun. devastating at points. Right. It, it, it's kind of depressing, devastating, gut-wrenching. Like, it's a punch to the to the gut sometimes seeing some of the scenes and seeing, like, what happens to the characters. But then realizing that Forrest is – his, like, impact on people's lives – um, and I guess the light he shines, it just kind of like doesn't matter that it's depressing. Um, there's so many characters here that the, that Tom Hanks character Forrest Gump interacts with that you're just like, wow, he just made that person's life a little bit better. Um, and, you know, it's just like a, a interaction here and there. Um, and there's some really good scenes between characters. Like my favorite character probably is Bubba. Um, it's just funny. It's lighthearted. It's, it's different. Well, it's lighthearted in the sense of it's lighthearted until it's not lighthearted. But, um, like Bubba and Forrest are just doing their thing. And, and they're like, we're after this war in Vietnam, we're going to be shrimp boat captains. Like I'll, I'll be the captain. You be my first mate. We'll split it down the middle 50-50 profits. Like, I can't wait for this to happen. And um, it's just interesting, the the dynamic between those two. Because it's clear that they're trying to tell you that both of these guys are slow. But to me, what people what isn't talked about enough about this movie is if these guys are so, quote-unquote, stupid, then how are they so successful? Cause, cause they're almost way too successful. If they're like, I don't think they're that stupid. I think they're just successful people who might be a little bit odd and quirky and and a little bit like maybe on the spectrum, but they're 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 successful. Like, that's not talked about enough. Like he he basically becomes this like gazillionaire, and it's just like brushed aside as like, oh well, I guess Forrest is just super rich now, and it's like. I don't. I just think it's so funny. I guess, and maybe that's what the movie's trying to portray. Is like it doesn't matter, but I just think it's funny. Yeah, well, everyone calls Forrest Gump stupid, but I can only think of a few stupid things that he actually does. Right. I mean, the only two things I can think of off the top of my head are just not knowing when to stop running in the football <laughs> game, which I got a good laugh out of. And the one scene where he jumps off of the damn boat to go see yeah, Lieutenant Dan. That's hilarious. That's a great scene. That was the one where I'm like, all right, I, I, you, you can call him stupid now because that, that was pretty dumb. You, you, you don't just right. do that. And, and then the iconic line where it's, um, it's like stupid no is, 
Yeah, you ain't got no legs. Uh, stupid is as stupid does. My mama always say, as stupid is as stupid does. And yeah, I just think it's so funny. Um, yeah, this is a great movie. Just a great movie with great storytelling. Um, like you said, the plot device to tell the story is kind of weird, but the way Tom Hanks narrates it, the way it, the pacing works, the way it, it all comes together, like that is what makes this movie. And it's 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 because of Tom Hanks, to be quite honest. Yeah, Tom Hanks, the the the, the ping pong. I, I I'll never not laugh at all the ping pong that this guy plays. I mean, he becomes an absolute obsession for him. Yeah, he plays but it all. I did was play ping pong, <laughs> and he's so good at it too. Like that's another thing in this movie is this man is an incredible athlete. He's super fast, and he apparently has the hand-eye coordination of like the greatest athletes in the world because he just becomes like the greatest ping pong player, basically just picking up a paddle and just like within what a year and a half is like in the playing overseas for like the u.s army like it's crazy how like yeah i I don't know about i don't know about you but this movie gave me a giant laugh early on when the the principal of the school is uh having sex with forrest's mom because forrest's mom's like i'll do anything to get my kid in this school yeah and so his he keeps making this noise and Forrest is just sitting outside. The principal's about to leave, and he says something about to Forrest, like, your mama really wants you to get into this school. And Forrest just makes the noise right back. I think it was like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> just like five or six-year-old Forrest making this noise back at this guy. It he goes was like, hilarious. Yeah, he goes, um, he goes, you don't talk much, do you? And he just goes, just starts making noise the noises at him it's like really one of the funniest scenes um that is great writing like that is great writing and it also shows like his mom is a single parent who's just trying to get by and look sometimes i guess you gotta do what you gotta do i don't know if i would do that but i mean heck she didn't want him to be in that special school she wanted him to be in in a normal school with normal kids which again kind of goes back to the point that she doesn't really treat Forrest as if he's stupid or if he's different. She just treats him as Forrest Gump. Um, and I think that's probably one part of the movie where it's like the bond between mother and son. And towards the end of the movie, there's kind of a little of a bit of a gut punch with, uh, with some depressing stuff that happens. That I think it makes it feel that, that much more impactful because of that bond and connection they have well let's go ahead and talk about jenny okay let's, well let's let's get let's go ahead and dive into it or can do you want to save give, it all for spoilers yeah i kind of want to save it for spoilers because i don't want to get into jenny and then be like i will say oh yeah let's let's give our grades i will say that jenny's character might be one of the worst characters in terms of movies in terms of how she acts towards other people and i don't blame the character jenny by the way they wrote her because she has a lot of complexity there's a lot of things that happen in her life that makes her the way she is but the way they wrote her character she is awful 
she is not a nice person and but then there's moments where it's like okay that's like the nice Jenny that's the Jenny that you know respects Forrest really likes Forrest and then you just get slammed in the face punched in the face by a Jenny that is the worst character in I would say in all movies like she is terrible wow uh I would say that I really liked Jenny for about three-fourths of this movie and then what they do with Jenny at the end yeah I I was furious maybe that's I thought yeah I think that what they have her do at the end of the movie and we'll get to it um I'll just say it what they did with Jenny at the end costs this movie an A plus for me okay Uh, yeah I and I thought that this would be an A plus movie but it's a very high A regardless it's an A 96.32 so still very high however as you could tell by the ratings that I've given I think they gave it to the wrong movie that year I think I think my vote would have gone to Shawshank Redemption yeah um so I'll go ahead and give my grade um again I think Jenny brings it down significantly from what it would be um and maybe I Maybe I can't separate the first three fourths of Jenny with the last fourth because that's how bad the last. I understand is. it. Maybe though. that's what it is. Um, I gave this movie an A plus, two point one, so still an A plus, but very, very just over the line. It just crossed the yard line, and to be honest, for most of this movie, this is probably an A plus in the forty range, thirty range. Like, A plus 40 to me, I think I gave the Iron Claw last year A plus 40 was what I gave the Iron Claw. Like, Forrest Gump was in that range. I love the Iron Claw. I've seen the Iron Claw five times in theaters already. Like, if if this movie was in theaters, I would have saw Forrest Gump multiple times. Um, But Jenny's character brings it down for me. And in terms of who should have won Best Picture or what movie should have won Best Picture... It's the Shawshank Redemption. I I don't think it's close, to be honest. Like, I really love Pulp Fiction. I love Forrest Gump. The Shawshank Redemption is on another level. That is one of the greatest movies of all time. That is a top five movie of all time. And I am shocked it didn't win Best Picture. In a year where you had some fantastic movies, I just, I still think that movie is head and shoulders above those other two movies. All right, let's get into those spoilers with Forrest Gump. We'll come back to Pulp Fiction. I think we'll, uh, let's just let's stay on the Forrest Gump. Let's get Gump it out of the frame. way. Let's get it out of the way. So Forrest and Jenny kind of have their off and on where he grows up with Jenny, and Jenny's the one girl at school that kind of shows him kindness and allows her to allows him to sit with her at the bus. And you learn that Jenny is the victim of a really bad childhood and a, and a really awful father that eventually she's uh, removed from his custody. And as they grow older, you can kind of tell that that had a uh, uh, clearly a big effect on Jenny uh, throughout her life as she kind of just wanders around uh, with, uh, with different guys just kind of, Nothing really seems stable in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's doing yeah, a lot of drugs, 
and Forrest is kind of the one person that's trying to like I don't want to say steady her but around her I guess yeah like, maybe that yeah. would be the right word and I don't want anyone to get it twisted I don't think that like just because Forrest feels a certain way about Jenny that Jenny owes Forrest anything like that that that's not what I'm saying but I liked that part of the story where it was Forrest kind of not really getting the message but Jenny glad Forrest is there to kind of help her out but also this isn't really the guy that I want to be with necessarily I thought it right. was it was interesting it was well told and I liked seeing the different misadventures that they got into yeah, I don't mind the Jenny not liking Forrest back. No. My my kind of problem with it is that she you could tell that she did like him. And she almost didn't want to settle for him, I guess, is what is what it seemed like. And that's where it left a bad taste in my mouth. Cause it was it was kind of like, well, look at Forrest. Like he's so successful. He's doing all this stuff. And you just continue to look at him as like He's this poor, like, animal, this this stupid human who can't figure it out. And you don't want to, like, settle for that. And then all of a sudden at the end of the movie, she's like, will you marry me? And it's like, okay, now I'm, like, pissed. Because you just spent this entire movie going, like, Forrest isn't good enough for me. Like, whatever. And then all of a sudden you just flip it on its head. And I guess we can get into, like, the worst part of it, right? Because I, there's I a thought, lot of things she does to Forrest that is bad, but the ending is terrible, what she does to him. Well, at first, she kind of just comes to his house, and they, uh, you know, they, we've got the whole, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is scene. Yeah, and that's that was also line. one where I thought that, okay, I'm still kind of, I'm on board. I, I... I hate it for the characters, but I'm on board with it. I can believe yeah. this. Right. I still kind of feel like Jenny is probably using Forrest as like a, uh, like, hey, at least I know I'm I'm good. Like when I hit rock bottom, I can come here, and that's right. fine. That's what it feels like. But it's weird. There's levels to it, and as you mentioned, the movie is told kind of through. Forrest telling his life story to different people on this on this on this bench at a bus stop and it's he's at this bench because he's there to see Jenny because he's gotten a letter from Jenny saying that you know hey how about you come visit me and one of the people he's talking to says like hey that's only you know a few blocks away and so he just starts uh he takes off running and you see Jenny and she's she seems clean uh you know just kind of waitressing that type of thing but uh then she says that hey i've got this kid he's about four or five years old and that's around the time that they last saw each other and uh i named her for i named him forrest after his daddy and I I audibly just said fuck you as right. soon as she said that because 
Because out of all the things she does, like that is that was the just worst. awful. Because yeah. you know that. Well, first of all, you're not in the greatest position right now, and Forrest would be a fantastic, stable, healthy. Uh, he's making money. He's got more. He doesn't know what to do with any of this money. But he also would be a loving father and husband. To quote Forrest, this is how rich he is. He is a gazillionaire. He he even says that in the movie. He's like, yeah, I was a gazillionaire. They were asking me to cut the grass in the local high school football field. I did it for free because I didn't need the money. I was like, this guy is so rich. And like no one one cared. But it was – yeah, it's not even about the money. It's for just four years. This for four kid years, just had no father when yeah. he would have had the best father. Yeah, it, it, Forrest would have been the best dad. And I think Jenny did realize that at w- one point because then they go to a park and they're watching little Forrest, Forrest Jr. play around. And Jenny turns to Forrest and is like, hey, Forrest, I have a virus. Like, it's they can't treat it. I think you can infer what it is. I'm almost positive she's talking about HIV, right? Mitchell yeah. is what is what it seems like. She has HIV. It's incurable. She's going to die at some point. And she turns to Forrest and she's like, and Forrest is like, I still love you. You can come live with me. So like, that's the character of Forrest. Forrest is so forgiving and like loves Jenny and so much. And there was never a that doubt of that either. Right, exactly. There's no doubt of it. He like looks past all of that. He's like, "Yeah, you just didn't tell me that I had a son for four years. Like, whatever. Look past that." He's like, and then she's like, "Will you marry me?" And he's like, "Of course I will." Because Forrest, that's like, I think that's what Forrest wanted the entire time. He wanted her to say that to him, and then they were gonna get married. And they get married, and, and it's it's all, you know, lovey dovey. Like some depressing stuff happens after that, but. The, the the I just can't separate. She does a lot of bad stuff to Forrest throughout the movie. Where whether it's like Forrest comes and sees her and then he finds out. Like he doesn't even put it together. But she's like, uh, a, I guess, an exotic dancer. That like her thing is she sits on stage naked and like plays guitar at like a men's club. And Forrest doesn't put together, like, that's what she's doing. He, like, kind of protects her from, like, these rowdy people, or these rowdy men who, like, try to touch her and this stuff. And he protects her from that. And she's like, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep trying to save me all the time, trying to protect me. And then immediately, she just, like, hitchhikes and, like, runs away from Forrest. Does it again. Then she she finds out Forrest is, like, at this protest for the Vietnam War. She comes running across. What is What is the... I don't even know what that is. The the monument park. The Washington comes, Monument. Yeah, the Washington Monument. She comes running across the water and like it's this great like love scene. They see each other, they hug each other. And then immediately you find out that she's part of like I I guess the way to put it is that the group is the Black Panthers, right? Is what is what it is, I would assume. Yeah. Or yeah. So yeah, she's a part of that group. I don't know how she got mixed up with that, but you know, then she leaves, she, like, introduces Forrest to, like, her boyfriend, and her boyfriend's abusive. Forrest tries to protect her from that again, and then she runs away with that guy again. Like, she just continues to run away from Forrest, and every single time it's like, oh, like, 
Jenny, like, you are the worst. I hate you. Like, why do you keep doing this to him? But the ending of the movie, it just makes me go audibly, like you were saying, like, F you. You are the worst. And, and like, that's why I think she's one of the worst written characters in all movies. Like, I think, I guess worst written is not is not a good way of putting it. She's the worst character in terms of her personality. And I totally understand why they wrote her that way. And I, I, I get it. Her life is complex. But could they not, like, do something, just something, to, like, make me feel a little bit better about Jenny? Because it, it really does bring the movie down. When I, when I immediately think of every time she comes on screen, I'm like, oh, what other bullshit is she going to pull now? Like, what is she going to do to Forrest that's, like, going to, like, make me upset? I just hate the fact that it feels like we're watching this character in Forest for so long, and at the end, it just kind of feels like he's being used. And, like, mm-hmm. used to do things that he, like, again, he'd be a fantastic father, and you see that. Uh, I, I really like how the, the first question that you, uh, that he asks is basically, is he smart, or, like, is he like me? And yeah. I, 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 I thought that Tom Hanks did a really good job with that scene because there was we, we've seen him, you know, success after success, but he still kind of has that insecurity mm-hmm. of yeah, like that's people thinking that he's stupid. Um, but yeah, it just I the, the end did not did not sit right with me at all. Uh, yeah, the ending it, of the movie's weird. It just felt kind of dirty. Yeah, I, I actually it didn't fit the tone. Yeah, it didn't fit the tone of the movie. I will say the actual ending of the movie, like the final scene, I I kind of I, I liked it a little bit, like the the you know, the callback to the feather floating in the air and whatnot. But yeah, the overall like last fifteen to twenty minutes of the movie just made me feel like weird because it's it's not the same movie. Like you said, it's a different tone. And and like his doesn't his mother pass away from cancer? Like, that happens in, like, the back half of the movie, too. Like, the last 40, 30 minutes. So, there's just a lot of stuff going on in Forrest's life. And it's, like, depressing after depressing. And there's, I mean, I guess there's a payoff at the end, but, like, not really. Like By the way, do you know who plays his son? Is it his actual son? No. No, it's not Chet Hanks. Yeah, that'd be funny if it was. Um, Haley Joel Osment. Okay. Who we will get into uh, in about maybe a week or so. He plays the main kid in The Sixth Sense. Oh, okay. Uh, gives one of the best child performances oh my, in, in history. Know, I looked at the cover for Sixth Sense because you gave me the DVD. I was like, do I know this kid from somewhere? And it yeah, was Forrest from Forrest Gump. I was like, that makes complete sense. Uh, that's funny. That's good. Um yeah, there's the connection right there, the 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 little connection between the two podcasts. Um, yeah, I really like this movie, but Jenny's character and really the last fifteen to twenty minutes brings it down significantly. Whereas, like the Shawshank Redemption, the last twenty minutes, thirty minutes is just incredible. I do think that's a difference between Shawshank and as we kind of converge into Pulp Fiction. Those movies end on a strong note. Right, Forrest Gump, I I don't think does. I think Forrest Gump kind of 
still a great movie. Some of, its, some of its worst material, but it's still a fantastic movie. Yeah. And I would highly recommend it if you somehow have not seen it. But let's go ahead and get into Pulp Fiction spoilers. Ooh. We talked about a lot of stuff in this. I'd like to talk about the way that this thing wraps up. Yeah, let's start it there. It starts off great. It starts off with Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth, and they're talking about not really wanting to rob banks, but they're in a restaurant, and they're like, well, no one ever really thinks to rob restaurants. Let's Let's just do this right here, right now. And then later in the movie... And, and probably, you also probably one of the it, most racist comments in like our conversations well, in all movies. Yeah. yeah, it's such a racist like conversation, but, but go ahead. It cuts off as they're starting to like rob the bank and then you go into Rob Tom the Tulsa and Samuel L. Jackson talking. And at the end of yeah, the movie yeah. it comes back and after the whole thing with the wolf and they accidentally shot Marvin in the face and so they have to clean out the car before Quentin Tarantino's wife gets home, which I just thought that whole sequence was a lot of fun. You did um, yeah, the coffee scene where he's like, this is good coffee. And he's like, stop bullshitting me, Jules. I know this is good coffee. I buy the fucking coffee. I, like, I liked so where good. it was like, uh, a, a, a please would be nice. And he's just like, motherfucker, I, I'm, I'm helping you out here. I don't need please. I thought that that was fantastic. Um, but uh, you get to the point where that's yeah. done. And so John Travolta and Samuel Jackson go somewhere for breakfast. Vince and Vega and Jules. And it's, and it's this restaurant, restaurant that yeah. uh, that Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth are at. And, you know, they are, they're strapped. They're, they're, they're packing heat. So John Travolta is in the bathroom taking a shit. But Samuel L. Jackson, uh, once Tim Roth kind of comes around and says, hey, give me your wallet and let's see what's in that case. Samuel L. Jackson, after having his spiritual awakening or something yeah, his like that. Come to, his come to Jesus moment with uh, with what he does as a line of work, I guess. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And, and just kind of the Samuel L. Jackson had such control in that room. With uh, the the argument he was having with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, and then John Travolta would come in there as well. And John Travolta, let's be honest, Vincent Vega is a dumb motherfucker. He just is. He's oh, he's, I mean, he's I feel like if you accidentally blow the head off of your informant, you're an idiot. <laughs> I'm just gonna like flat out say that. But yeah, he's dumb. But yeah, the way Jules Winfield just like controls that entire scene. Is is masterful by Samuel Jackson. Like that entire scene, there's tension, there's there's grit, there's attitude, and it's all controlled by Samuel L. Jackson. So yeah, continue uh, if you want to like explain what exactly happens. But it and is that, absolutely fantastic what happens next. He kind of talks to Tim Roth about like, I'm I'm not trying to do this anymore, and then he goes into the. Uh, the path of the righteous man speech that he usually gives before he kills somebody. He's like, you know, if I, if I said that, that meant your ass, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be different. Turning over so, a new leaf today. Exactly. I, yeah. I'm not going to do this. I thought that that was the scene where I'm like, how do you not give this man an Oscar? How do you not give this man an Oscar? Cause every scene, he just has such control 
over the room and he pretty much diffuses this uh this this restaurant robbery and that's how the movie ends and i loved it yeah so instead of killing the two characters pumpkin and honey bunny who are the robbers um he just goes like all right i'm gonna give you guys this much money that's in my wallet it's a lot of money it's like a lot of cash i'm gonna give you this cash you can have all the other wallets but you're gonna turn around you're gonna walk out of here all four of us are gonna be alive and like that's what's what's gonna happen and I actually think it's brilliantly written in terms of the way the story is ended, um, where it's kind of just Vincent, Vince Vegas character and Jules Winfield walking out of the, the, I guess the diner is the best way to put it. And they're walking out of the diner and they, they turn around and they like put the glasses on and they just like look at the camera and it's like, and it's like in movie. It's just so funny. Like, I think it's so well set up. And what I love about it is that it, you you could you tell that it is out of order like earlier in the movie Vince Vegas character he gets like his head blown off by butch yeah. or not not his head uh he gets hit he, he gets he, shot he, in the chest by a shotgun yeah, yeah. cuz he's he's part of Marcellus Wallace's crew and this is after Bruce Willis's uh character butch was supposed to take a dive in the fight and instead he kills the other boxer so he's got to go back to his apartment because his girlfriend forgot the watch. You or know, this girl he met is it even his girlfriend? It might just be this girl he met. Like I don't, I don't really know that whole. I don't know. I also thought that the argument that they had about that was really funny because he's like yeah, so yeah. pissed off, and then he's like, "Nah, it's not your fault." And then he's having a conversation with himself in the car. He's like, like, "She's such an idiot." I, I asked this woman to get one damn thing. If you forget one thing, make sure it's not this. And what does she forget? I thought I thought that was really funny, but he's got to go back to his apartment, and it's probably really dangerous to do so. Marcellus Wallace might have like people like waiting for him there, and Vincent Vega, being the dumbass that he is, leaves his gun on the counter while he's taking a piss, and Butch just it's shoots so him. Stupid! It. It's so stupid. Just, just doofus. Um, but that was the but moment dude, where I was like, oh, huh, what, 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 what do, what are we doing now? And then you see Vincent Vega later. And so you kind of got to watch the rest of the movie with like, okay, so if this is happening here, then what's happening here. And then especially so, once you see them go into the diner, that's right. the big, like, okay, so the movie's starting and stopping at so, the same point. Do you want to get in my into my theory of why I think Let's it hear might it. not be point of view? Vega is the vehicle for which the story is like told in the way the story carries on. Because if Vincent Vega isn't such a dumbass, then like a hundred percent of what happens in this movie does not happen. Butch Coolidge's character does not grab his gun, shoots him. He then runs away from his apartment. He then runs into Marcellus uh, Wallace um, car, you know, there's a huge crash scene. And then for some reason, Marcellus is like firing his weapon while there's innocent people around, kills like two people there. Then they end up in this pawn shop where this racist, like 
I guess the best way of putting it is, I don't even know how to put it. This racist pawn shop owner, uh, you can tell he's racist because there's, there's like some of the stuff he says. and One some racist of the... pawn shop owner in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. They found the one guy. I just don't know how that's possible. And then he calls the cop and the cop is also racist. But it turns out that both of them like enjoy doing some really effed up stuff to uh, some some people the bring out the gimp scene, which I don't know if we want to like dive fully into that one, but my, yeah, my point is, is that if Vega is not in a, a complete idiot, then a hundred percent of what happens in this movie does not happen. The whole wolf scene does not happen if he doesn't blow off Marvin's head. That, so that's why I think Vega is like the main character and the device for which the story is told. So maybe POV is not the best way, not point of view, but everything doesn't happen unless Vega's character is not an idiot. And that's what I think. That's like the brilliance behind Tarantino's like storytelling is he kind of uses Vega's like stupidity as a way to like move the plot along and to tell the story and we get all these great scenes where we get the pawn shop scene we get um we get bring out the gimp we get the wolf scene like the wolf scene doesn't happen if he doesn't blow off his informant's head for some reason like it just doesn't happen so that's where that's my theory is that vega is like the the real like i guess you would say protagonist because but he's like moving the story along is what i'm kind of getting at well, yeah, if you were just to take it uh, in chronological order, or at least, you know, yeah, chronological order, the last scene of the movie would be when uh, Bruce Willis uh, drives off on the chopper and his mm-hmm. wife asks, uh, who's Zed? And he goes, Zed's dead. That that would be the last scene of the movie. If, right, if right. It was chronological. If it was told in chronological order, but it's not, which makes it fantastic. Is that a damn Stanley Cup? It is. My parents got me one for my birth, my uh, for Christmas, not my ah, birthday. Well, I hope you um, like lead. I yeah, I didn't. I didn't go out and buy a forty dollars. It didn't Stanley beat up any, you know, wine moms for that for that mug. No, but it is a good cup. I will not a, not an endorsement for Stanley, but a good cup. Yeah, I'm not a hockey person, but there's only one Stanley Cup as far as I'm concerned. Well, well done, Mitchell. <laughs> well done. Um, yeah, I, I just think, I guess my, my, my one last take on Pulp Fiction, I've already said this before, is I just don't know many directors and many movies that would have pulled off telling the story out of order like this, not even in reverse order, like he does in some other movies. They tell this out of order completely. Like they just like slap the scenes like in different spots. I don't know if another movie can successfully do that the way this movie did. And I don't know if you have one that has done it that way, Mitchell, but I can't really think of any that have done it this successfully. Well, isn't that the beauty of things? We'll have a lot of time to try to uh, find something that does something like that. And we're going to go up and down the uh, the IMDb Top 250. So, hey, maybe there's another one that maybe. has a similar narrative device maybe something that tarantino's done who knows i kind of get the guy richie stuff where like the gentleman kind of feels that way a little bit like it's told out of order a little bit so i i get where people are like oh yeah that's kind of like a straight rip off of, of pulp fiction this feels like the first movie to really try that and to like dive into it i'm sure there's other movies that tried it before but to like successfully pull it off like i think pulp fiction might have been one of the first ones um and that's awesome to me 
All right. Well, that wraps things up for 1994 in the best picture. Again, we it was also a quiz show and four weddings and a funeral, which I'm sure we will get to. And I have had I have heard good things about both of those. But right. Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption are kind of the three most iconic movies of 1994 or of any year. The next three or four podcasts we will be doing, Brandon, we've got ghosts or not, sorry, not ghosts, ghosts and warm bodies coming up. And as someone who has seen both of those movies, I'm very interested to see what you think about those. And those movies are actually pretty similar. So I can't talk about those with you. Interesting. Then in 1999, we'll get to the, what should have won best picture for that year. We'll talk about the sixth sense and American beauty. Then The Notebook and Shakespeare in Love, two iconic romance movies that I have not seen either of those. So I'm really looking forward to checking both of those out. Shakespeare in Love, maybe infamous Best Picture winner. The fact that it beat Saving Private Ryan was uh, really unexpected. And then we will start our deep dive with Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs, and Django Unchained being the uh the first two apart from pulp fiction what a good duo by the way because i think those are like two like different tarantino movies or different takes and that's a pretty good duo so props to you i don't know how you came up with that on the randomizer but uh those were the two tarantino movies that had like the highest ratings outside of pulp fiction okay so i thought i've got reservoir dogs and Django unchained paired then obviously kill bill one and kill bill two that was a no-brainer uh, Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are similar, and we'll get to that when we talk about those movies, but they both pull a similar type of trick. And then Jackie Brown and Hateful Eight are kind of the forgotten Tarantino movies, so the pairings right. just kind of made sense to me. No, the, those pairings make sense. Um, Maybe for Kill Bill, we can kind of just spoil it, all of it, um, instead of waiting till the very end to do spoilers, because... You can't really watch Kill Bill 2 without watching Kill Bill 1. Exactly, yeah. yeah, We'll kind of approach that kind of the same way we did Now You See Me, where we spoiled the end of Now You See Me before we talked about Now You See Me 2. Exactly. Um, Sounds good, man. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait to dive into Tarantino. And I'm I'm excited for Ghost and uh, Warm Bodies because I haven't seen either one of those. Really? Okay. Well, uh, I think that you're going to... I think you're going to like what you see, but we will, we will get into that next time around. Thanks for joining us on press play action here on Jersey nerds productions. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.